step study tonight. Is everybody ready? If so, let's start the meditation. Light prayer. It's up on the screens to the left and to the right. God. Amen. There is a solution. From the big book, page 17, the tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. I've asked Marion to read Appendix 2, Spiritual Experience. We read this because the main purpose of the 12 steps is to have one, so it's kind of important to know what one is. I'm Marion. I'm alcoholic. Spiritual experience. The terms spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book which upon careful reading shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms yet it's true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of sudden and spectacular upheavals Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. Erroneous. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. 
Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life, that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource, resource which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of the spiritual experience, or more religious members call it God-consciousness. Most emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There's a principle which is a bar against all information, information, which is proof against all arguments and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. Herbert Spencer. Uh, please refrain from disturbing others uh, by talking. Well, I, I guess uh, during this meeting... It's all right if you guys, uh, you know, get up, grab a slice of pizza or drinks. Um, uh, so set your phones to airplane mode or meeting mode or just turn them off. Uh, tonight we have Tom doing his fourth session. Um, yeah, every every week thus far has been nothing short of amazing. And uh, I don't know. I, I genuinely enjoy coming here on Thursday and getting to hear this man speak. So with that, I give you Tom. And then he's got to put that spot on you, too, right? <laughs> you know? <laughs> My name's Tom. I'm an alcoholic. Oh, you got to get some grapevines, you know. There's some good jokes in the grapevine. You know? <laughs> really good, good, you know. They've been qualified already, you know. <laughs> so once upon a time, a stranger lost his way, seeing a farmer plowing in a nearby field, stopped and asked what road he was on. I don't know, the farmer replied lackadaisically. Well, where does it lead to, queried the stranger. I don't know, the farmer repeated. Well, what's the name of the nearest town, the stranger again asked. I don't know, the staccato reply. You certainly are dumb, aren't you, the inquirer said in aspiration. Maybe so, mused the farmer, but I ain't lost. 
right? That's what I was when I got here. I was lost. Yeah. I wasn't just lost. You know, I was uh, <clears throat> kind of crazy, you know? I, I don't even mean kind of crazy. You know, I was, I was pretty dang crazy, you know, uh, the way that my mind worked. Uh, it was just, you know, the only thing that I can think of today is it was just insane the way that my mind worked. I, uh, those who have been here the past few weeks have been hearing me, you know, tell my story uh, through the steps. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's real pertinent to tell this story of, uh, of what I was like when I got into the VA hospital after 10 years of being around AA and never staying sober and getting to the point where um, I couldn't even quit anymore. Uh, I lost the power of choice altogether. Uh, choosing, I mean, to stop drinking and stay stopped. I could always do that before, and now I couldn't do that anymore. That's what progression had done to me. And I was just, I was crazy as, uh, well, we in construction like to say a shithouse rat, okay? That's how crazy I was. And uh, they brought me into the VA. They put me on anti-abuse. And we used to have a, uh, we had a therapeutic community with 35, you know, or so men in that therapeutic community. And we would elect our own officers of the community. Of course, we were overseen by the staff of psychologists and therapists. And, and we would have a, a meeting every morning at 8 o'clock, a community meeting. And everybody would share in that meeting. The therapists would all share the, uh, you know, everybody that was in the community would share. And then this man came in one morning, and he had a notebook. And he sat in the back of, of the room in the corner, and he opened this notebook. And right away, I took notice of this man. Because as we were talking, he was writing in the notebook. And the way that my mind worked was, all I could think was, what's he writing in that notebook? I became obsessed with uh, this man who was sitting in the corner, who wasn't sharing, never said a word. And why isn't he sharing? Who is he? What's he writing in that notebook? He's probably writing all kinds of stuff about me in that notebook, you know. And it's amazing how this, as, as the time went on, you know, into a week or a couple, how I was developing a hatred towards this man. I hated him. He never even opened his mouth. But I, I had a huge resentment towards him, you know, sitting over there in that corner, not participating with all of us, writing stuff in that notebook, writing stuff about me. You know, more persecution coming my way, right? And uh, after, uh, and you have to understand something. I mean, I really didn't have anything by the time uh, I got there, more than a four-letter vocabulary, you know. It was F this, F that, and F the world, and F you. 
you know, that's all I knew. I was full of the, the, the most terrible rage that I'd ever been in in my life. It was really the only thing I could identify with, was, was this rage that I felt. And uh, they said, we want everybody to go down in the basement of the hospital. I was in the James A. Haley Veterans Hospital in Tampa, Florida. We want everybody to go down into the basement of the hospital, and they're, and they're going to have, uh, you guys are going to go into uh, therapy to learn how to be assertive. Now, I didn't know what that word meant, you know. I didn't know what the word assertive meant. I don't know. What's that? Some, it, to me, it was some kind of psychological term, I guess, you know assertive. And so we go down in the basement and and standing at the door is this guy. And I think, oh, here's this guy, you know. This is his deal. And we go in and there's desks, you know, like in a classroom. And we sit down at the desk and the man comes in and he writes his name at the top of the chalkboard, you know, and right away I start thinking, what is this, like high school or something, you know, why, you know, what kind of hokey stuff is this, you know? Mr. So-and-so. And then he writes a one, and he writes some hash marks. He puts some hash marks, four hash marks. He writes a five, and then he writes, puts some more hash marks, and he writes a ten. And at the top of one, he puts passive. And at the top of ten, he puts aggressive. And at the top of five, he puts assertive. Then he turns around and he says, now all of you alcoholics, oh, I'm really getting angry now because now I got some non-alcoholic guy, me, who's been around AA for 10 years. Me, who knows, I know all about this, okay? And now I got some non-alcoholic guy who's going to be preaching to me. You know, and he says, all of you alcoholics fall in this category somewhere. The ones, you're totally passive-aggressive, and you're the most dangerous men in this community. I can see the jaw muscles going in your, in your jaw. You take everything that happens in your life, and you're stuffing it, stuffing it, stuffing it all the time. And then one day, all of a sudden, all of it blows out the side of your neck, and some poor guy or some poor gal catches everything that everybody should have been catching a little bit of. And you just blow up like dynamite. You're dangerous people. And then on the other end, we have the tens who are very aggressive, you know, who are just, you know, on all the time. And you people, you know, you passive people need to learn to step up and start talking about your feelings and stuff and things that bother you. You need to start working your way up and learning how to be assertive. You have to get up to a five. And you aggressive people need to learn to calm down. You have to calm down and you have to start to come down here, you know, and, and quiet down, slow down, and come down to... A five and be assertive. 
And he looked at me and he pointed at me and he said, you're the most aggressive man in this community. And I doubt if you'll stay sober. And I said, oh yeah, F you. <laughs> they had us in a class and this nice young girl who was a psychologist, I guess, was gonna teach us, she was gonna teach us how to behave in the outside world, you know. And, you know, she wanted us to, to make a map of all the places of interest around where we lived, like museums and theaters, and, and none of us could remember where anything was around where we lived except for the dope house and the liquor store and the saloons we went to. We never went to any places of interest, you know. She said, we're going to do a little role playing. She said, Tom, uh, let me ask you something. If, uh, let's say somebody, you, you work construction, right? I said, yeah, all my life. She said, let's say you found out, if you found out somebody on your job was trying to get you fired, what would you do? And I'd say, I'd beat him with a two-by. Just very natural. And she said, well, that's not sociably acceptable behavior. And that's when I really blew up, that she would tell me that that's not sociably acceptable behavior. Because as I started yelling at her, who, who, do, who are you? What do you know about me? What do you know about what I've had to put up with all my life? You see? Because I had this gigantic victim story. This huge victim story. I had this, this uh, not a chip on my shoulder. No. I had a boulder on my shoulder. And... Uh, I was, you know, I was so smart about AA. I knew so much. You know, they elected me president of the community, right? Now, now I'm, I'm telling everybody what they need to do to get sober. See? And uh, one night, I'm walking down the hallway, and at night, after everybody goes home, there's, we had guys who's called ward boys, who they are are veterans who always worked in the, in the psychiatric ward, you know, who had to do the muscle work, putting guys in restraints and stuff like that, who are alcoholics who are sober in AA and now have asked to work in the, in the alcoholism ward. And there are babysitters at night. And they take care of us and watch us all night long and all the staff goes home. And I'm walking down the hallway and two of them are walking my way and all of a sudden when they get on top of me one grabs one of my arms and the other one grabs my other arm and they open a door and they shove me into this room and they shove me down in a chair and one of them gets over me and says you know what Tom we don't need any more counselors here okay we got enough counselors this is how you've been staying sick sitting up there in that day room every night till one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, talking to these guys, telling these guys everything that they need to do. That's how you keep from looking at you. You don't want to look at you. You need to start talking about yourself. 
and looking at yourself and stop pointing the fingers at everybody else. In other words, you don't stand much of a chance of changing until you get rid of your victim story. And I was lost. I was lost in two months, and I came out of there, and I told the story about how Dennis O. stopped me in the door of the old American Legion Central House, and he took me through, through the first three steps. And then he said, now, he says, I want you to find somebody, you know, take you through the rest of the steps. And so I was at a meeting one night. Uh, I'd only been out for about six weeks, eight weeks maybe from the VA. And I was at a meeting, uh, the old Saturday night uh, post meeting, you know, in Boynton. And uh, it was a packed meeting. We're all coming out the door, and the guy's next to me. And he looks at me and he says, I know you. And I said, yeah, I know you too. He said, yeah, you were a couple of years back. He said, you were chairing a meeting in uh, Coral Springs and you asked me to come and speak and I showed up, but you didn't. And I said, yeah, I got drunk, you know. And uh, I said, and I've had a lot of trouble, but I've been sober a few months now. I went to the VA. And uh, I need somebody that would help me with the steps. And uh, his name was Tom Noonan. He's a great guy. Went back to New York City a long time ago. And um, he said, well, come on, we'll go have, we'll go have uh, coffee. And uh, we sat and we talked. And he told me about how he had gone to a program at Bark for nine months every week learning the steps. And the thought that I had in my mind was, well, if anybody is crazy enough to go nine months someplace every week learning these steps, then that's the guy I need to teach me these steps. And because, you know, I never had done any steps. I mean, 10 years, all I ever did was take up a seat in a meeting. You know, I mean, I wasn't really there to get sober. You know, I was just there to get out of trouble. That's the only reason I was there. Not for getting sober. I wasn't interested in that. People used to say to me, they'd say, uh, I'd tell them about the things that he would have me doing. And they'd say, oh, he's crazy. I'd fire him, you know. Well, you know, I stopped seeing those people a long time ago. I haven't seen any of them in years who used to say that. But I'm still around after 38 years. And I'm sure he's probably still around up in New York City. On page 42 in the 12 and 12, it says, Nearly every serious emotional problem can be seen as a case of misdirected instinct. When that happens, our great natural assets, the instincts, have turned into physical and mental liabilities. How did that happen to me? You know, that's, those were the things that I needed to find out. You know, why I had the feelings that I had, why I felt the way that I felt about people, places, and things, you know, because I had a, a lot of really bad 
feelings towards people, places, and things, and institutions, and organizations, and on and on and on. I really, you know, to describe me, if you weren't exactly like me, if you didn't think exactly like I thought, if you weren't a union laborer like I was, okay, if you didn't come up out of the ditch like I did, if you didn't live the, the kind of life that I lived, I had no use for you. No use for you. You know, I saw you as uh, somebody not even worth talking to. Why would I talk to you? And I was angry at everything and everybody. You know, I, I, uh, I made a good union steward because I would fight in a minute, you know. And, uh, of course, when I got sober, I had to start doing things differently. Well, without a searching and fearless moral inventory, most of us have found that faith, which really works in daily living, is still out of reach. That's the thing that I was told. That if, until you take this four-step inventory, yeah, you, you know, because I, I had, you know, from the third step, I really had a, a, uh, an experience from that. I felt really good after these first three steps. But like Tommy told me, he said, if you don't get right into this fourth step, you know, you're, you're not, your chances of, of making it are, are very slim. You'll be right back out again. Because if, you know, the whole problem is, is the guy that you are. You know, the obsession for me to drink, uh, you know, it was gone. And I needed to change the guy who I was. Because like I was told, if you don't change the guy that brought you in, he's the same guy that's been taking you back out all these years. That's the guy that keeps taking you back out the door. So it's not going to do you any good. And did it do you any good all the years sitting around in AA and not drinking? Didn't you always drink again? Yeah, I always drank again. And I was always miserable, you know. And a big part of my a big part of my uh, daily life was miserable, you know. I I had to be taught uh, things that would, because I would get, I would get obsessions in my head about people. I would think that that people were out to do things to me. And, and I couldn't stop thinking about that, you know, and, and focusing on, on somebody, you know. It, it, uh, it would drive me crazy. And, uh, and he taught me uh, what was called, what Emmett Fox wrote, called the golden key. You know, if I would, uh, every time this negativity would start in me, and I couldn't get away from this negative thinking that I needed to get a mantra. Mine was, God, all the power is yours. And when this thinking would start, I would just keep saying this over and over again, refusing to think all these negative thoughts 
about what was going on in my life and just keep saying in my mind, praying over and over again. Because now I've become a believer in prayer. Prayer now has, has you know, taken the obsession for me to drink and to use away. And I've become a believer that God had done this for me. And I knew that God loved me. You know, my good friend, Chris, and I know real well, Pacer Bob, we call him, because that's what he had when he got here, was a pacer. So they called him Pacer Bob, right? He's a great guy. When I heard Pacer Bob say, the first two steps are a feeling, I knew what he was talking about. Those first two steps are a feeling. You feel them. If you, if you have to ask me, do you think I've taken the second step? Well, you haven't. You haven't. You wouldn't have to ask me that question. Because I understand what, what Bob meant when I heard him say that. That's a feeling. It comes to you. It's an experience. It happens to you through prayer. Through, through you getting on your knees, asking God for the strength to stay clean and sober, going to meetings, you know, and thanking God at night, humbling myself. And it didn't matter, like I was told, it doesn't matter whether you believe it or not, because what you believe has never worked for you. So this isn't about what you're going to believe, it's about what are you going to do. You're going to do it? Just do it. Okay. And that's what I did. I've shared that in the past few meetings, you know, that that's, that's how I came to believe. That's how I came to pray. And I came to believe from it. I had that experience of having that feeling. And the same thing happened when I got on my knees with Dennis after the Sunday morning men's meeting at the Central House, and we said the third step prayer together, me holding this old man's hand. And I kept looking at the door, seeing if somebody's going to come in there. Worried about what somebody might think about me. And when I left him that day, something, something had happened to me. You know, these, these experiences are what made me willing. I got honest with myself. I got open-minded to a new experience. And I became willing to do whatever was asked of me, whether I believed it or not. Now... That's, that's the rock of this program that was given to me, the, the foundation of this program. God reached down through the darkness. He pulled me up from the muck in the mire, and he set my feet upon a rock, and he established my goings. He saved me from the pit. And I know why from the third step, so I can help others to get out of that pit. He put my feet upon the rock. The rock he put me on was, was, was Alcoholics Anonymous. The goings that he established in me are the steps. If I want this AA way of life, and if I want, you know, you know, it's like we're told, if you want what I got, then you do what I do. You don't argue with your sponsor. It's like he told me, you know, who's the sponsor? 
See, because I want to argue with everybody when I got here. I mean, uh, basically, that's all I did for the 10 years around AA was argue with all the old timers in AA. And they would pat me on the back and say, oh, you got a right to be wrong, Tom. What kind of crap is that? I got a right to be wrong. So, you know, because, because you see, and, I, you know, and I'll get into this deeper, you know, we get into the fourth step. You know, I'm like this, this guy that I told the joke about. I think everybody else is stupid, but I'm the one who's lost. Why do I think that I'm so smart? It's like, you know, my wife was told, you know, my wife's in the program too. And she's like me, you know, a slipper. She's had her hard times, and she doesn't mind me telling a little bit of her story, believe me. Remember when she picked up uh, 12 years once? She's got 18 years now. Well, March, she'll have 19. And we've been together 33 years. I just married her. Two weeks later, she got drunk. Anyway, that's another story. <laughs> that's an Al-Anon story. <laughs> so... But she, she told the group when she's picking up 12 years, she said, you know, this isn't the first time I had 12 years. I had six years once and, three, and two years three times. Heads up 12, you know, you get that. So uh, she ended up, I, I thought everything was fine, you know. I, uh, I was uh, traveling and, and uh, I was gone for two weeks at a time and I'd come home and everything was beautiful, you know, the kids, the house and. I'd be home for the weekend. We'd have a great time. I didn't know as soon as I hit the road, she's hitting Walgreens liquor store, you know. And then I left one Sunday morning to go to Augusta. I had a two-week class to train up there, train laborers. I was training laborers. And uh, my beeper went off. And I, I called the house. It was the house. I called the house, and her older sister answered, and she said, I think we got a problem here. I says, what are you talking about? There's no problem there. Everything's fine. Oh, yeah, she holds the phone out. And my wife is, I don't know, but I was told she was strapped down on a gurney. And uh, Boca PD was taking her out of the house, and she's yelling at him, you dirty donut-eating MFers, you know, my old man's got lots of guns, and when he gets home, he's going to kill all of you. And her sister says, does that sound like everything's okay, Tom? <laughs> well, what are you going to do? You coming home? I says, I can't come home. I got a job to do. Got a mortgage pay. Got kids to take care of. But don't worry. They're taking her to the Boca Hospital. Then she's going to South County Mental Health. And she'll be getting a couple of girls from Wayside House visiting her. And that's where she went. And she's, she'll, she always tells a story. She's sitting in front of her, her uh, uh, therapist, Stanley. And uh, Stanley told her, he said, I'm, a similar story to me in the VA hospital. I'm tired of getting in trouble over you. Well, what do you mean getting in trouble over me? You know, you, know, you think just because you've been around uh, AA, you know, that you know something. Well, yeah, I've been around AA for years. Doesn't that count for something? Well, if you're so smart, what are you doing here? That got through to her. 
just like it got through to me. You've been around all these years. You think you're so smart and know so much, then what are you doing drunk again? How'd that happen? Or like they said to me, how's your way been working, wise guy? You think you're so smart? You know how to run the show? Why is it that I think that way? Why do I think I'm so smart and you're so stupid? Why do I think that you have to be wrong and I have to be right? What drives me to have these beliefs? Well, I'm not going to find that out except by doing a four-step. If you want to find out why you got this problem, you need to do a fourth like the old timers say, do a fourth or drink a fifth. What's it going to be? We do all these things, you know. They're just crazy things. And it's all, we think, you know, justified. You know, that, that's one of my biggest problems is, is I'm a master of justification and rationalization to soothe my conscience and minimize my guilt. It's amazing how I can talk myself into things and that they're okay. How I can talk myself into how I treat you and that's okay. How I can talk myself into how I treat myself and that's okay. It only took me 20 years sober before I quit smoking. Well, say, hey, it was easy. You know, in those days, we drank coffee and smoked. The whole room would be, we'd have ashtrays all over these tables if it was, you know, 30 years ago, and there'd be smoke all in this room. We'd all be puffing on those cigarettes. I'm glad I got, what I tell you, Chris, 19 years without a cigarette now. But it took 20 years sober to do that. I'm sober 38 years, but, you know, I, I, I'm no saint. Believe me. My wife will tell you. You want your inventory taken, just ask your wife, you know. I mean, she spent 33 years with me, you know. I mean, you really want to judge my character, go talk to my wife and my children, okay? Because they see me for who I really am. And who I really am, you know, is uh, all I always tell people, you know. I'm three people. I'm the person that I think I am. I'm the person that I want you to think I am. And then I'm the person that I really am. And if you want to find that out, you, you know, and the, and the problem is you can't figure that out. See? Listen, I tried for years to figure this out, okay? I have not found anything in the big book or the 12 and 12 or any of the other spiritual books or anything I've ever read that says, this is how you figure it out. None of it says that. Doesn't say this is how you figure it out. What, it, what will happen is, I love that old saying, more will be revealed. And things are revealed. God makes it possible. 
and this change happens in God's time. I was in my home group, the Boca Men's Recovery Group in Boca on Palmetto Park. Men's, it's a men's meeting. And we were talking about defects of character. And I was sharing, and I was sharing how I wasn't satisfied with my character. I'm not satisfied with my character. And, you know, I probably never will be satisfied with my character. Do you know that's a blessing? You may not think that. But that's a blessing. You know that old saying, uh, God's not going to give you any more than what you can handle? You hear around AA all the time. Oh, hell yeah, God's going to give you more than you can handle. That's how he brings you to him. Why are you going to go to God if, you, if you're handling it so good? Huh? I would have never gone to God if I was handling everything so good. What would I need God for? I could just keep on being God, pretending to be God, running my own show. No. I fail all the time. But my failures glorify my God. Because my God loves me unconditionally. He loves me in such a way that we're not capable of understanding. I know that. I know I'm not capable of understanding the kind of love that God has for me. It's so unconditional. But see, I wasn't raised somehow I don't know I guess I got a different message or something Where, how this alcoholism you know affected me and affects us all and why is it so rampant in families everybody in my wife's family is an alcoholic her mother and father were brothers and sisters I have a sister I was talking to her this morning she's sober 39 years I took her to her first meeting, and then I went and got drunk. That's why she's got a year more than me. My grandfather, my father used to see his father sleeping in doorways on Skid Row. And then he'd tell you, because my old Irish grandmother wouldn't divorce him, and he'd periodic, he'd get where he just couldn't stand it anymore. He had a barbershop, he'd lock up the barbershop, and just go straight to Skid Row and, and live there for a couple of months and stay drunk. And when he sobered up, he could come home. And me and my sister would sit and talk with the old man and tell him about how alcoholism affects everybody in the family. And he'd say, well, my father's drinking didn't affect me because my mother wouldn't allow him home if he was drinking. Never mind seeing him sleeping on the sidewalk. I guess that didn't affect you, huh? Things affect us. Of course his father was a bum. Of course my father told me I was a bum all the time. His father was a bum. I was a bum. But am I going to stand up here and tell you that I'm going to blame my father? It's his fault for the way that I felt about me? How's that going to be helpful? Don't you know that I learned a long time ago that... That's not his fault that he felt that way. 
And whose fault was it that my grandfather slept in doorways? His father ran off and went to Portland, Oregon, and never came back. They say he had the longest bar in Portland. How's this stuff get passed on, you know? Is it going to do us any good to sit around and blame everybody else for everything and point fingers and say that I wouldn't be in this situation or I wouldn't have this kind of thinking if it weren't that the way they treated me? I needed to I needed to identify with what triggers the feelings that I that I come in contact with. That's done through the fourth step. By I have to become aware of those things so that I can identify them. So that I don't have to keep living in this trap, you know. And I, I was full of self-condemnation and false pride. Uh, that's what drove me. I learned that, I learned that through, through my four-step. I, I put, you know, I think there's probably enough here. I made up 50 of these. I think there's about 50 people if you'll hand them out for me. I like to do this. I like to give you something. Let me keep a one or two. There you go. And we'll go over that. We start to learn a lot. And I know you, you hear a lot of talk about seven deadly sins. And, and sin is, uh, if, if you think of sin as, as what it comes from the Greek, and what sin means is to miss the mark, Okay. That's all it is. You missed the mark. Not you're going to be condemned to hell. And you're worthless. I won't say I'm a recovering Catholic, but I was raised with catechism every day. You know, I had a lot of, uh, of people that, uh, that were violent upon me. But somehow I got a wrong message that, that warped me, that warped my thinking. Now, this is not from the big book. This is the way that he was taught to do the four-step. It's the way I've been teaching people for years to do the four-step. If you look on the, the side that says instructions to do a fourth-part step, a four-step in three parts. Just about everybody got one. That's good. Did I have about it? Did I have enough to go around? That's good. Great. Is it odd or is it God? <laughs> so all you need is a pen and a notebook with line paper. And what you're going to do is you're going to write a life story. But it's not a life story as you would think of in your own interpretation and analyzation. Because no analyzation is allowed in this. You know, my sponsor, Tommy, told me, he said, this is the way I was taught to do this because there's a lot of us like you who are almost constitutionally incapable of being honest with yourself. 
you're not going to be honest with yourself. You're not going to sit there and make lists out of the big book and be honest about what you write down. So they taught this to us at Bark, this way of doing it. And, and let's, you know, there's as many ways to write a four-step as there are stars in the sky. Is it really that important how you write one? I think what's important is that you do write one. Write a hundred. Keep writing them for years. What difference does it make? I've been inventorying myself every day for years. That's a practice that we need to, we need to that's part of the AA way of life. You know, when we get to the 10th step, I'll give you a, a little more simpler way of doing it than a full four step. But first of all, the thing to remember is you can always write too little, but you can never write too much. So take your time, but do it every day for 30 minutes. And before you do it, Get on your knees every time before you sit down with your pen and your paper and ask God to help you. Ask God to help you and to open your mind. Open your mind so that you can, you can put these things down on paper that need to be put down on paper. And all you're going to do is you're going you're to leave a blank space because you need that for the second part on your line paper. And all you're going to write about is it the experience and events in your life that you either felt good about it or you felt bad about it? No analyzation is allowed. Just this happened to me and, and I felt good about that. And you write that down. I felt good about that. Write down how you felt about it. You either felt good about it or you felt bad about it. It's just that simple. You don't need to analyze the feeling. Analysis brings about paralysis. That's what happens to us when we get in there and start trying to figure things out and analyze everything. All of a sudden, we just, you know, we're Dr. Young. <laughs> we're Freud. How come these people couldn't help us before? How come all these psychologists and clergy and medical doctors, and none of them were ever successful with alcoholics? Us alcoholics are successful in helping other alcoholics. You know, we... Uh, I like the reason why we're chosen. You guys used to read that, didn't you? In this group, I thought. Why we were chosen. Because, you know, if God would have wanted to give it to more knowledgeable people, people with more degrees on the wall. I always love Russell. My friend Russell Spatz talks about how, you know, he was... Uh, He's a, a high-end, very educated guy, you know, and he, had a, he got a sponsor who was a dump truck driver. And he brought, he brought his, his sponsor up to his office, and he said, and these are all my degrees. And his sponsor said, yeah, Russell, and you know what else has degrees? Rectal thermometers, and you know what they do with them. <laughs> so, you know, if all that intelligence would have helped alcoholics, you know, I suppose God would have gave it to them to do. You know, but he gave it to us to do, to help each other, to get sober. So we don't need to try to figure it out or analyze why you feel, why you felt that way. 
We get into the fifth step, it starts to, it, things start to happen a little bit. But we need to just write down how we either felt good about it or we felt bad about it. Then you're going to use the blank lines in the second part to, uh, if you turn the other side, here's, here, and you can use this as a daily inventory too. Here's your personality characteristics of self-will. And on the other side is a personality characteristic of God's will. Because that's what we need to learn to do. See? If we're going to make a decision to turn our life and our will over to the care of God, and, and people will come to me and they'll say, like I had a kid say to me, he goes, well, you know, uh, I, uh, I, really, I don't think I can do this uh, third step because I don't understand God. And I said, well, that's God as you understood him. Well, what do you mean? Well, you understood that you don't understand God. That's fine. You don't have to understand God. You don't have to understand God before you make a decision to turn your life over to the care of God because your will has not been working. So why don't you try God's will? And what makes you think, you know, what makes you think that, well, well, what does God want me to do? I says, well, what makes you think that God has some special will for you? God's will for me is the same as it is for everybody. It's written right on the top of page 133 in the big book. It's to be happy, joyous, and free. God wants, God loves me. He wants me to be happy, joyous, and free. He wants us all to be, he loves us all. And he wants us all to be happy, joyous, and free. And he's got a plan for that. It's the plan that they tried to teach me, you know, all my life, but I twisted it all up. I twisted it all up. So this, this, all this is is me learning to do God's will. You want to learn to do God's will? This is God's plan. He's, he, he, you know, God's will for you is not whether you win the lottery or not or whether you get the right girlfriend or the right job or the right place to live or all of your wish list for Santa Claus. I guess, unless you have a Santa Claus God. I had one because I had a punishing God. And the other side of the coin of the punishing God is the Santa Claus God that wants to meet my demands, or I got no use for him. That was part of my sickness. I had, to be, I had a God problem that I needed to get well from. I wasn't a bad guy who needed to get good. I'm a sick guy who needs to get well. And I get well through God because I have a spiritual malady. That's my real problem. See, first I got sick spiritually. Then I got sick mentally. Then I got sick physically. And what happens is we get well the opposite way. First we get well physically. Then we get well mentally. And finally, we'll get well spiritually through practice in a spiritual way of life. So here's, this is pretty much self-will over here. And then the opposite is right here. You can go right across here and see the opposite. So you're going to take those assets, and these are assets and liabilities. You're going to put those in the blanks. And then the third part is you're going to add them up, see how many times these certain ones come up, and whatever the most that come up in liabilities are your main defects of character. And the best things that you have to work with 
that you do the most are your main assets of character. And you're going to look and see the patterns of your life and the things that you need to get rid of and the things that you need to keep. Am I going over? I'm, I could keep on talking on this. Listen, I, I want to close with, uh, with something because, you know, we really have to get over this idea of, of uh, the, you know, we have this self-loathing that just is in us, you know. We just love to beat ourselves up. And this isn't about beating yourself up. Especially people that come from a Judeo-Christian background. We don't want to, you know, how many times I went to confession, I stopped all that. I didn't want to go to confession anymore. I, I didn't want to, you know. We get sick of this constantly looking at ourselves. We're always looking at ourselves and beating ourselves up all the time. And we've got the wrong idea about God. We want to bring you back to God. We want to bring you to God. So when I needed to get rid of that old God, then the people would, this is from uh, Father Thomas Keating's book, Divine Therapy and Addiction, on step four. He talks about people with religious background, especially Judeo-Christian background, need to arm themselves with texts that emphasize the boundless mercy of God, such as the parable of the prodigal son. This passage has been a great source of consolation to many people with difficulties like this. But you already hit on the most essential thing to keep reminding them. He's talking to the AA man who's interviewing him, which is to affirm their basic goodness. In biblical language, this means we are made in the image of God. This image can never be erased by any activity whatsoever. God's presence and light within us supports us every nanosecond of time. All of human misery is simply layers of junk that covers this. And, it's, and, it, and so it's sometimes easy to identify the junk as ourselves instead of recognizing that junk is our enemy disguised as misguided or distorted activity, not our true self, that remains a brilliant jewel, even though it's at the bottom of a pile of garbage. These people need to be encouraged to start shoveling with the firm confidence that if they get to the bottom of the pile of this junk, they will find their own immeasurable beauty, God's gift that can never be destroyed by any misconduct, whatever. It doesn't matter to God what you've done. Next week, we'll talk on the fifth step about how I almost ruined that. <laughs> Thanks for letting me share. Let's thank the speaker one more time.
our Hebrews 7 tradition. Say that every group should be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions to baskets are going to be going around. While that's going on, Fast Andre to come up and read the recovered statement. We read this notice to explain why many people in this group identify as recovered rather than recovering. And what it exactly means to be a recovered alcoholic. Andre, recovered alcoholic. Recovered. We are not cured from alcoholism. Recovered, but not cured. That presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we would be able to drink responsibly. We are not cured. The allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for our lifetime. But we have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. We are now sane where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered. Thank you. Thank you, Andre. 1940 style, big book sponsorship. From the forward to the second edition of Alcoholics Anonymous. Of Alcoholics who came to A and really tried, 50% of them got sober at once and remained that way. 25% of them sobered up after some relapses, and among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe, and experience is that God has not changed over time, and neither should the sacred approach back to his loving arms. The statistics above suggest a 75% success rate. Can I please see a show of hands of recovered alcoholics in the room tonight? Okay, more importantly, does anyone need a sponsor? We got a couple. Not to embarrass you guys, can you just stand up and say your name real quick? Just so everyone in the room can see you. Craig, we got Craig. Sabrina, hi, welcome. So if you guys can get with these folks, that would be great after the meeting. Let's get them back to God. Last meeting of the month, we don't celebrate anniversary, we just do a quick little recognition. Uh, did it, uh, you could just stand up and say your name if you had an anniversary in the month of January. We have any celebrants? Kelly. Kelly was five years. Two years this month. That, that explains the pizza, I guess. A um, couple quick announcements. If you're new and you don't know where to get big books, literature, medallions, uh, Broward County Intergroup. Address is on there, a.broward.org. Uh, it's now open Saturdays. Look at that. Um, it looks like Broward Intergroup, speaking of Broward Intergroup, has a sober camping conference. It's right here, right? It's Hubert uh, State Park in Fort Lauderdale. It looks like the planning meeting is a, a month over, but um, April, April 1, yeah, <laughs> you got it. Uh, looks like if anyone wants volunteer opportunities, there's plenty of that to go around. Institutions Committee, is anyone on the BCIC? No? Okay. Second Saturday of the month at 12 Step House. 
that's us. We're going to be meeting here next week again for Tom, his fifth session. Also, please join us Monday nights where the Big Book comes alive on the third floor of this building. The fellowship starts at 6.30. The Big Book study starts at 7.15. Also, we have CDs, mugs, large print Big Books, little red books. Big Book dictionaries for sale, usually in the back tonight. They're up here. If you want any of that stuff, see a home group member. And, yeah, we'll be here next week. And we ask you to be courteous and ready to begin at the Road to Recovery theme song. See you all next week. Um, anybody who wishes to thank tonight's speaker, please line up down the center, one of these two centers. Um, and let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread.
Chase, here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go. Green now, 
turn each way Flowers blooming all the time right outside my door Never before I had to change everything To realize That today is the best day of my God bless. I love you, Mike Chase. Bye.